This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. And Matt, it is the first, I guess, full week of the offseason. Like last week, we kind of wrapped up the World Series, and now we are going full steam ahead into the offseason. We're going to talk about qualifying offers, the guys who got them, the guys who didn't, and what StatCast says about that. Uh, yesterday, we had all of the awards finalists being announced, so we have to talk about that. And then also, one of my favorite parts of the early offseason, the Arizona Fall League uh, Fall Stars game, which happened to be played in a ballpark that was equipped with StatCast. So we can look at some of these young guys who are not actually that far away. But first, I think we're going to start with the awards. And yesterday, we saw all of the BBWAA award finalists uh, being announced. Did you think there were any surprises or kind of along the lines of what you expected? Um... I guess that's a. I wouldn't say I'm surprised that um, neither of the Rockies candidates end up as a finalist for NL MVP, but it still looks a little weird in light, particularly in light of the season that Charlie Blackman had, which is sort of like in historically unique that he did not make the top three. But it was reasonable. It wasn't like it wasn't like a snub because you know anytime you talk about this, it's like, well, who do you put him in? Well, Instead that's right. of, I, I guess I've become sort of like the national lightning rod for disgruntled Rockies fans because they like to come to complain to me about it. And that's you're sort of right. Whenever anybody would tweet at me and saying Arenado got robbed, I said, "Well, he's great, but he wasn't the most valuable player on his own team. And so if he's not, how can he be in the top three in the MVP voting?" Yeah, and that I mean, this happens uh, frequently uh, with MVP voting where there's two good candidates from the same team where they almost sort of like def- defeat each other. You know, like remember late '90s Yankees. No one ever did that well in MVP voting. Um, and part of it was that they had so many good players that it was hard to pick one guy to sort of, you know, stand. I mean, J- Derek Jeter's ridiculous 1999 season finished sixth in MVP voting. Um, so th- this tends to happen. And it's sort of, I think it happened with the Rockies. There's also the course field effect that, so, that some some voters will discount Rockies at their face just because, like, they just dis- kind of discount the stats. There's also the fact there were two sort of quote unquote deserving candidates like you. I thought Blackman was a better would it was a better choice. Um, it wouldn't surprise me when the votes come out next week when we see the full breakdown if both of those guys got first place votes. Yeah, we're probably going to see like six or seven different guys getting at least one. In the NL, yes. yes I think- in the NL, because it's a mess. And when I look at all of these uh, awards finalists, for the most part, I'm on board with all of them, except for the National League Rookie of the Year. I have some, I have some disagreements, well, we just, but we'll get we, to let's that. Let's go part. through them one by one. So we started talking about the NL MVP. Should we, let's start there. Sure. Uh, the three finalists, Goldschmidt, Votto, and Stanton. And I think... I'm not super surprising. You know, obviously some people wanted some other guys, but um, I'm really excited about the possibility that Joey Votto could win this award. I think he might actually do it this year. It's, it, it, it does surprise me actually a little bit that Votto did make the top three considering how poor his team was. But I think what we're seeing here is, you know, a lot of this, what depends, these awards depend on is like the voting pool. Cause it's 32, it's a sample of like not random because it's one from each bureau or two two from each bureau and and else uh, each chapter yeah. each chapter sorry 
two voters from each of the National League BBWA chapters right. vote on this. So it's like it's, their, yeah, uh, it's a mixture of a pool. You don't know exactly what the the, the, the pool is going to be in a given year. But to me, this suggests it's a pretty um, forward-thinking stat pool, uh, the forward-thinking voting pool to get Votto in the top. I think you're right. Because when you think about the, the Hall of Fame vote, every eligible voter can vote for that each time. But if it's, you know, it depends on the, a little bit of the luck of the draw. If I, if I were to get a vote, I would vote very differently than, let's say, someone who's been writing for a newspaper for 50 years. And, and that matters. And there's not that many votes. So the fact that the Votto's in the top three says to me that this is a more analytically inclined uh, voting group that doesn't care about how the team finished and looks at things very strongly like OBP, where Joey Votto, amazing OBP fact that I've not fact-checked, but I saw tweeted just before I walked in here sounds true so i'm going to that's that's never led anywhere bad (laughs) it sounds true uh that if joey Votto, if you tacked an 0 for 65 onto his seasonal line he would still have led the national league in obp which is amazing i hope that's true and then i I actually do believe it so it kind of comes down to well let me say this all due respect to paul goldschmidt had a fantastic year to me it's Votto versus stanton right Uh, goldschmidt was great but I, i feel like both of those two guys Votto and stanton or maybe just a step above. And you know, part of that is the advanced stats, for example, are expected weighted on base average, uh, where the league average is like 320. Joey Votto had a 424. Obviously, all these guys are great. 398 for Stanton and 397 for Goldschmidt. Um, but I do think when you look at, at Votto, he's head and shoulders above in that metric. However, he did not hit 59 home runs as Stanton did. And I still think that's going to resonate for a lot of people. And I have to say, if he did one more home run, it's a slam dunk. It's insane to think one more dinger changes this whole battle. But if he hit 60, there's no question. I think you're right. One cool thing about Goldschmidt I want to mention, and David Adler did a really good piece about this uh, on MLB.com uh, that you should all check out, which is that Goldschmidt, his hitting approach has changed drastically over the last few years. Whereas, like two years ago, if you look at his spray chart, very, particularly on the for power, he like sprayed home runs all over the field. Last year, it started tilting a little bit towards the pull side. This year, his power was almost all dead pull, and his like his like expected weight on base on pitches on the inner third was like four sixty. But it's interesting that basically his his production stayed exactly the same, but the way he got to it has actually changed a lot. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, I think Stanton's going to win. I would vote for Votto. I did not have a vote this year. Your choice? Um, I think Goldschmidt's going to win. I'm going to slightly contradict. Wow. I think I think I'm going to slightly contradict what I said before right. <laughs> and say that I do think that making the playoffs is actually going to give him enough of a bump. And what's going to be a it's going to be one of the closest races ever, ever. As I said, I think we're going to see at least five guys get first place votes. Oh yeah. Am I forgetting anyone besides the, the two Rockies to get a first place vote? Oh Rendon. I think we're going to see six guys get first there. place votes. You might you might see like maybe not a first place vote, but I think like Turner or Bellinger will get some kind they of missed, support. Turner missed too much time to get a first place vote. In my mind, but I think yeah. we're going to get my bold prediction is six guys get first place votes. Goldschmidt squeaks it out over Stanton. All right. That is a very bold prediction. Um, AL MVP is interesting. Judge, Altuve, and Ramirez. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that Mike Trout should be the third place finisher there. But I get it. Jose Ramirez played the whole season and was fantastic. Now, and the season ended, the regular season ended, we talked a lot about Judge versus Altuve. So I don't think we want to rehash all of that. But I'm interested to know, did the postseason change your opinion on this? And I know it doesn't matter because all the votes were due at the end of the regular season. But looking back now, do you feel any differently? Um... Not really, but we know. I should mention we do have the MLB awards, uh, which include postseason performance. So you know, when it comes down to it, for you know, maybe for for best major leaguer, Altuve's postseason performance and Judge's postseason performance do count into it, and they both played well in the postseason. But Altuve was fantastic throughout the postseason. I saw I saw that ballot, and I'm going to vote Mike Trout in that. I am. <laughs> um, yeah, when you come down to it, I think. It's going to be a narrative of consistency versus highs and lows, right? Altuve was consistently great. Uh, Judge was better at his best, and obviously much worse at his worst. When it comes down, when it comes down to it, though, it's like I remember 
a couple weeks before the season ended, like, wow, these guys are having really similar seasons. They got there in very, very different ways. And then, of course, Judge goes and hits like 75 home runs in the last week of the season. And if you look at his expected weighted on base average, 446, that led the entire major leagues. Altuve is of 349, which is very good. Now, obviously, Altuve is a little bit more than the expected because he can he's so fast. I think we looked up, he had a ton of infield hits. So the actual weighted on base was 430 for Judge and 405 for Altuve. Uh, Altuve added a ton more value on the bases. But I would notice... Aaron Judge was a pretty good outfielder. I think we had him at like plus seven outs above average, which was like top 20 in baseball. For a big guy, he can really move out there. Yeah, but I would still, I, for me, my vote would, I, I would vote for Altuve, and I think Altuve will win. I'll put the emphasis, I think the extra things he adds are um, the speed, 32 stolen bases, and also just on the bases in general. I'll take the guy who plays depth in the middle position, and all the credit due to Aaron Judge, he plays an excellent right field for his size. It's still a very small right field he has to play in his home park. I believe Altuve will win, but I think people think it's going to be a slam dunk, and I think it's actually going to be extremely close. Uh, agreed. If we look at the Cy Young, so our friend Tom Tango, who has been a guest on this show and is our, our chief data scientist here, uh, he has made in the past a Cy Young predictor. And this is not predicting who should win, it's predicting who will win. And that's based on voting patterns since 2010. And the reason he chose that year is because Felix Hernandez won the Cy Young that year with a 13-12 and 12 record. That's kind of the first year where it's like, oh my God, maybe wins don't matter. And uh, it's been a pretty good tool. Last year, he got the top three finalists in each league as a prediction. The year before, he got the top five in both leagues in order. So it's been pretty interesting to look at how voters have behaved. And it's based entirely on innings pitched, earned runs, strikeouts, and wins. Now, you should obviously use more advanced stats than that, but it's actually worked out pretty well. So there's also one loophole, which we'll get to in a second. But if you look at the uh, American League, its predictor was Kluber number one, Sale number two, and Severino number three. Those are the three finalists. I really think that um, the narrative is going to sweep Kluber into this, right? Like for the first four months of the season, not only was Sale guaranteed to win the Cy Young, people were talking about him for the most valuable player. I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, it's it's Kluber. I think at this point is is going to is going to win it. I wouldn't say he's not going to sweep, but the sweep. Be close. I mean, because the sort of to your point before about Stanton, if Sale ends up with uh, just on the other side with with less than three hundred strikeouts. I think it is it is he does he does Kluber does kind of blow away the field. But three hundred strikeouts, he was the first guy in the AL to do it since Pedro Martinez. He's Kluber's going to win because it's simple as this: he had a two twenty five ERA and Sale had a two ninety ERA. And at the end of the season, Sale had an ERA over four the last two months. It's as simple as that. I don't think it should be, but that's the way it will be. But can I tell you my favorite stat of all of the awards? Uh, the expected weighted on base average for Corey Kluber was 248. That was the best of any American League starting pitcher. The expected weighted on base average of Chris Sale, an identical 248. You could argue in some sense that they had the exact same season. And, but yes, but there's also the, the arc you mentioned before. Last 23 starts of the season, after he got off the DL, Kluber, 1.62 ERA. He was ridiculous. 224 strikeouts over his last 23 starts, which is, yes, insane. Uh, we should note that Luis Severino is a, a very... Uh, you know, deserving number three here. He's got no shot of winning, but he's no, a fantastic I think season. Kluber, this Kluber will win. It'll be his 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 second, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. Let's move to the NL and break Tom's Cy Young predictor. So I said there was one loophole, and let me explain what that means. If a pitcher has more wins and a lower ERA than the pitcher above him in terms of points, that pitcher bubbles up to the top, and that's actually a loophole that applies here. Clayton Kershaw finished second to Schmeck Scherzer uh, in terms of the Cy Young predictor points uh, of Steven Strasburg, who was three. So it got all three of them correct as far as the finalist goes. But Kershaw had 18 wins and Scherzer had 16 wins. Kershaw had a 231 ERA. Scherzer had a 251 ERA. We'll never talk about wins so much on this show ever again. But that's the point. is Based on the previous 
voting behavior, Kershaw jumps up to the top. Now, I think that's interesting. I don't actually think Kershaw's going to win. Do you? No, I don't. Uh, we actually just looked this up just before the the uh, the podcast, and Kershaw had 175 innings pitched this year, which would be, if he wins, would be by far the fewest for any starting pitcher who's ever won a Cy Young Award. In a non-strike year. In a non-strike year, or I think maybe, or Rick, discounting Rick Sutcliffe, who got traded mid-season. Yeah. But it would be a hard, so the, the, the previous low was actually Clayton Kershaw himself, 198 innings. Uh, in 2014. 2014. And it's also interesting because Scherzer only had 200 and two-thirds innings, so he would actually barely clear clear the bar of the fewest ever, but he still wouldn't be the fewest ever. We're going to, I think, repeat this conversation a lot in the years to come, because you're just not going to see starting pitchers going 240, 250, 260. It just it doesn't work that way anymore. No, but still, 175 for a starting pitcher to win uh, the Cy Young is still pretty low. I mean, granted, over over time, that could change. It might become the norm. But for now, even even by the current standards, 175 is, is pretty low. Yeah, and um, if we look at our favorites that expected weighted on base, Max Scherzer is actually the best starting pitcher in baseball this year. At 242, that was the lowest. Not that Kershaw was very far behind at 253. These are obviously two elite pitchers. I do think if Kershaw had stayed healthy the whole season, he does win this award. Uh, but he didn't. Even though Scherzer didn't either, he's still going to have 25 more innings. I think that Scherzer is going to win. I'm not saying it's going to be a sweep, but I think he's going to win relatively easily. Agreed. Uh, and also... Do credit to Steven Strasburg, who had a fantastic season, but you know wasn't wasn't the best pitcher on his own team, so he's got no shot of it. And also only threw 175 innings. Also true. Moving on to uh, let's talk about the rookies of the year. Yeah, there's maybe not possible to have uh, less drama than in these two rookies of the year, right? Aaron Judge is going to sweep the American League. Cody Bellinger is going to sweep the National League, and that's really all there is to it. I'd be absolutely floored if anybody else got a first place vote uh, than either one of those two. It's not even close. Yeah, it's not close. So, you know, you can uh, you all, you know, the numbers, they both had a ton of home runs. It's easy enough. But I thought it was interesting. If you look at the American League Rookie of the Year, Trey Mancini, who I'd kind of forgotten was a rookie, uh, but had a pretty decent season for the uh, for the Orioles. He's a finalist at 24 home runs. And Benatendi, Andrew Benatendi, who I think might have been my preseason Rookie of the Year selection uh, because nobody knew that Judge was going to go off and do this. Benatendi had a good year. I wouldn't say he had a great year, right? I mean, it was it was a pretty good year, 2020, which is nice for a rookie, 352 on base. Uh, weighted runs created plus of 103, so like a league averageish hitter overall, a pretty good player. But he didn't have this breakout. I think we. All I'm know. also some. I mean, I'm. You know, we'll get to uh, in the NL. You had Reese Hoskins. In the AL, you had Matt Olson. Matt Olson didn't he hit 24 homers? Didn't he yeah. like match Mancini and homers and like half as many at bats? Because literally nobody watched the A's for the last two months. Of season. And, that, and that's unfortunate. I'll probably later in the year dedicate an entire show to why I think the A's are going to be super fascinating next year. But you're right, Matt Olson kind of got left out. And then when you look at the National League, so Bellinger is going to win this by a sweep easily. Uh, Paul DeJong and Josh Bell were the other two finalists. And it's not hard to see why, right? Like the Cardinals had all these shortstop issues early in the season. Up comes Paul DeJong out of pretty much nowhere. Nobody was paying attention to him. Uh, he hit 25 home runs, played a pretty decent shortstop, uh, slugged 532. I mean, that's a good season. There's no disrespect to what he did. That's, that's pretty nice. Uh, and Josh Bell actually had a really good season as well. I would not have picked either of those two as, as my finalist, right? Like Bellinger, for sure. For me, you know who my next two would have been? I know you know because you're looking at our notes here. Reese Hoskins. And I get it. Two, only 212 plate appearances. Um, but he was really good. Like, he was really, really good. Yeah, I also, I mean, like, you know, it's it's not prospect of the year award. But, you, all, I mean, if, if I were voting, I would certainly try and, like, take that into account. Like, how is this vote going to look in 10 years? Like, I think the, the famous example I think back is when – Chris Coughlin, former guest of the podcast, and exactly he's had a fine, fine uh, MLB career, but like he beat out um, McCutcheon. McCutcheon based on like 100 points of, of BABIP. Right. And it was like, it was clear at the time, like this isn't going to look good in 10 years and it looks silly in retrospect. And like looking at BABIP, quality of BABIP ball contact, Paul Jong, great year, but 
He had a weight on base 359, expected weight on base at 323. That tells you, you know, early, you know, fantasy baseball alert for next year that maybe you shouldn't really be, you know, buying into Paul DeJong's season. I, I agree. And I will say, I actually do like Josh Bell. I think he's going to be a very good player for a long time. Uh, but in it, I would have had Reese Hoskins uh, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, everybody saw the home runs he hit. But if you look at every hitter who had 100 plate appearances this year, we're talking about over 420 guys. His 399 expected weighted on base was ninth. All right. I had a Stanton, Goldschmidt, Rizzo, Correa, Turner. And obviously, we're not talking about a huge sample size here. I don't expect him to be a top 10 hitter in baseball next year. But what he did, and he was a highly touted prospect. He wasn't some guy who came totally out of nowhere. He was he was one of their best prospects. And he's one of the reasons that uh, I think the Phillies are going to be a really interesting team for the next couple of years. Yeah, I think that, I mean, he's not, he's not a, he's not young. So he doesn't have quite the like excitement of, of, you know, like, you know, super, you know, some of these guys that come up when they're 20 and we get all, you know, we start freaking out about. But I mean, the Phillies in the not so distant past, we've seen, you know, like Ryan Howard come up at the age of 25 and become like a impact player for a few years. You know, Hoskins follows a, a, a bit of a similar mold. You know who else I would have had in my top three? Luis Castillo, starting pitcher for the Reds. He went three and seven. So right there, that invalidates him for a ton of people. Uh, and I think he only pitched like 90-something innings. But he was really, really interesting. 208 starters faced 100 batters. He had the fifth lowest expected weighted on base. Now, I will admit you have to see it for more than 90 innings. But he was really impressive, and he's had a really fun history. He signed with the Giants as an international free agent in 2011. Traded to Miami for Casey McGeehee. Uh, in 2016, he was traded to San Diego and then immediately back in the Colin Ray deal where Ray blew out his elbow after one start, and then he was traded to the Reds for Dan Straley. So, I, you know, certainly you can't say that this guy is going to be an ace, but based on the 90 innings we saw last year, nobody was really watching him. He was fantastic. I absolutely would have put him in my top three. I think that's it for the awards. So uh, you might have also noticed that news this week was qualifying offers, and the qualifying offer system got... A little more complicated in the in the most recent CBA. We're not going to explain the whole thing here, but it is based on whether you received an offer, the market size of the team you go to, the contract you get. There's a lot of different factors that go into it. But the point is, it should be a little bit easier for guys who receive the qualifying offer to find jobs than it's been in the past, because that's always been an issue. So nine guys. Yeah, the key, the key thing basically is if you sign a guy who received a qualifying offer, your highest pick is exempt from forfeiture. So you will not have to sacrifice your your highest pick for signing a guy who got a qualifying offer. Under the previous CBA, only the top 10 picks were exempt. So, you know, only like the worst of the worst teams um, didn't have to worry about losing their top pick. Now, every team, their top, their highest pick is exempt. So the, if like most likely the worst you're going to give up is your second round pick, that will certainly make teams less hesitant to, to sign guys who got a qualifying offer. So there were nine players who got a qualifying offer this year, and I would note that I, I wrote a prediction article, and I got nine for nine, which maybe says less about me than it was about how predictable that these guys actually were. Um, you probably know the names, but Carlos Santana, Eric Hosmer, Moustakis, Lorenzo Cain, Wade Davis, Greg Holland, Lance Lynn, and Alex Cobb all received qualifying offers. I don't think there's any particular surprises there, and some of those guys are going to go off and get huge deals, um, but I've, I found there to be somewhat of a disconnect between what I expect and what I don't know, the narrative seems to be about some of these guys. Like, I think Lance Lynn is a pretty good starting pitcher, right? Like, a solid mid-rotation pitcher. And if you look at his expected quality of contact, uh, of 187 starters who face 200 hitters, his expected weight on base is 310. That's 67th best of 187. So that's, like, the back end of the top one-third. And that sounds pretty much exactly right. Like, that's a pretty good starting pitcher. I've heard some people saying, like, $100 million plus for Lance Lynn. And I don't know, that, that seems like a lot to me. Maybe I'm just underestimating how much money is out there. I don't know. Yeah, it's well. I'm I'm kind of with you. I don't I don't see that, you know. But um, Jeff Samardzi, who I was never enamored with, got ninety 
million a couple years ago. So maybe like in terms of production, he's probably about as good as, as Jefferson Marger was at the time of his he had free agency. Jefferson Marger always came with more hype as the former football star who had the big fastball. But um, maybe I think on the high end, that's that's what Lance Lin, Lin would get. But I, don't, I agree with you. I don't see it. I, I also think Hosmer is going to be a really interesting one because you know, he's always been an extremely divisive player, right? He's always been a guy who the numbers have never really been there in the way you want them to be, but he's been the heart of a World Series championship team. You know, he's, he's people think he's a good fielder and the metrics say he's not. He's always been very complicated. And then last year, he actually had the season that everybody had always wanted him to have. He was uh, legitimately very good last year. Over his first, you know, six seasons, he had over 3,700 plate appearances of a 107 weighted runs created plus, basically league average hitter. Last year, he was fantastic. 385 slugging, 495, excuse me, 385 on base, 498 slugging, 135 weighted run created plus. That's very good. But he still had the fourth highest ground ball rate, which is confounding to me. And he's young, which is great. But I think everybody thinks he's going to end up with the Yankees, the Red Sox. And I'm going to have a lukewarm take and say he's not going to end up in either of those places. I think the Yankees like Greg Bird. I think the Red Sox are going to do something different like J.D. Martinez. I just don't. I know he seems to fit with Dombrowski. Like that's kind of perfect, but it's almost too perfect. I think he might be the most likely to stay with Kansas City. Um, it's, I see, I mean, the, the Royals, see, the other thing, the other, the, the other key thing about the, um, the qualifying offer system now that's important to remember is that if your team, you're one of the 16 teams that receives revenue sharing and the Royals are in that group, you get a pick right after the first round if the player signs for more than 50 million elsewhere, 5-0. So the Royals probably need to rebuild. Um, Jeff Sullivan did a pretty uh, sobering piece on Fangraphs about their, their depth or lack thereof, basically saying that in top-end talent, they're towards the bottom, based on projections. In mid-tier talent, they're, tops, they're <laughs> towards the bottom. And in uh, back-end talent, basically, like, nowhere do they stand out. They're, they're, they're in rough shape. And I think that if any team could use an, an influx of young talent, it's them. They can almost guarantee – if they just let these three guys walk, they're almost guaranteed to get three picks in the, like, 31 to 35 range, not to mention they are going to have their first-round pick. They really – could like give their system a boost if if all these guys walk. Do you, do you believe that all three of them are going to get fifty million dollar contracts? Hosmer obviously yes, right. Mustakas almost certainly yes. Kane will be interesting. I think he deserves it, but he's a little bit older. You know, he's not a prototypical power hitter. I think there's a lot of teams that could use a very good outfielder. We talked about this before. The Giants, the Mets. There's a couple of teams that could really use him. I I think I think he will. I, I think he deserves it as well. Um, I think that you know the two closers, you know Davis and Holland. There's there's a lot of 2015 Royals on this list. Um, when I look at the guys who didn't get a qualifying offer some of them weren't surprising you know i thought cc Zabathia had a nice year but they weren't going to give him that much andrew kashner was pretty overrated based on his quality of contact the one that stood out was zach cozart and zach cozart had a really really good year uh after a whole bunch of seasons as being like a light hitting shortstop you know, through 2016 and over 2500 plate appearances he had a 289 on base 385 slugging and last year out of nowhere 385 on base 548 slugging actually started the all-star game over Corey seager which i'd forgotten about hit 24 home runs uh, there are some warning signs here. He's going to be 32. And if you look at, uh, we had all the hitters who had 400 plate appearances, nearly 200 guys. He had the second largest difference between expected weight on base and actual. He was the second biggest overperformer, uh, tied with Marwin Gonzalez, right behind Eduardo Nunez. Cozart had a 332 expected and a 399 actual, which tells me a little bit about his ballpark, I think. Not that he hasn't always been playing in that ballpark. Um, but I might not bet on him going forward to maintain that kind of performance. Uh, nor would I, but I kind of think. Um... The Reds should have given him the qualifying offer. I think that like they are another team that falls in the revenue sharing pool, so they could they could stand to get um, a pick after the first round. And I think that like 
worst case scenario, yeah, it's a lot of money for a small for a quote unquote small market team, seventeen million if he accepts it. But like he's not going to be an albatross on a one year deal, and and at the trade deadline could have trade value. So I thought that like all things considered, I kind of seemed like that maybe they should. I, I agree with ninety percent of what you just said. One part I don't is I don't think he's going to get a fifty million dollar contract. I think that's going to affect the value of the pick that the Reds get. Right? Like he's a guy who's like. I don't know, three for 36-ish, something like That's that fair. for me. Or maybe he's the first uh, four for 49.99999 million. But I, because yeah. I, I, like, there's not a lot of teams that need, uh, not a lot of win now teams that need a shortstop. That's there's fair. so many good shortstops out there right now. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see where, where he lands. Uh, anybody else on the qualifying offer list who stood out to you? It's kind of went as expected. I, I guess though. the question I would pose to you is like, is there anyone you think that will accept? Uh, I think Kozart would have. Otherwise, I believe no one's going to accept. I mean, some of these guys, like, uh, you know, Arietta, you know, we didn't talk about him. He's obviously not going to accept. He's going to go get his big ticket deal. Um, like, all, you know, Hosmer's not going to accept. Maybe Carlos Santana. Like, maybe he's the only one I could possibly see, but nobody else on this list, I think, is even going to consider it. Uh, I think Santana is more like, to me, Santana's the kind of guy who will, they have, to, they have until November 16th at 5 p.m. Eastern to uh, accept or uh, decline the offer. And Santana's the kind of guy, and you also can you can negotiate now. But you also can continue to negotiate with these guys after. I could just see him; he's not going to get seventeen million per year anywhere. So I could see him coming to terms with Cleveland. They love him. The fans love him. He's been there. He's like sort of like a, you know, there's no one that values Carlos Santana more than Cleveland. And I think I could see him coming to terms on like you know three for forty or two for you know two for thirty you know two for thirty two or something to stay in Cleveland and sort of like keep everyone, you know. I could see that totally, but that would technically mean he did not accept the offer. That's true. So, so the, I will say nobody accepts the, the offer. The one guy I actually could see doing is, is is Holland. You think? I think so. I think there's a non-zero chance Holland. That's. I mean, he just turned down his player option for like 15 million. Yeah, but it would still be the highest single-season salary closer has ever gotten. And the, uh, let me tell you why I disagree. Because there is no time in baseball history like the present to get paid if you're a reliever. And unlike last year, you know, there's no Chapman out there. There's no. There's no Jansen out there. There's Davis. There is Davis, but you know Davis is getting a little older. He's had arm issues in the past. I, I just think like Holland could potentially uh, market himself as the best reliever out there. I think some team will give him four years for eighty million dollars or go nuts. I'm not saying I would do it. I'm saying somebody <laughs> will do it. Um, perhaps. So I, I mean, I guess I disagree with you on that one, but I think it'll be interesting to find out. Let's finish off by talking about something totally different: the Arizona Fall League. And I, I always find this one of the most exciting times of the year. If you don't know the Arizona Fall League, it is a league of approximately a month long that is played in Arizona spring training parks in October and early November, and it showcases the the best of the best minor league talent. And it's not guys who are you know all eighteen and years and years away. For example, last year in the AFL, Ian Happ, Cody Bellinger, Greg Bird, the year before Gary Sanchez, Alex Reyes, and James Paxton. These are guys you can see who will be in the major leagues next year and in some cases making a large impact it is a finishing school for mlb's top prospect okay so uh, i think how it's uh, is that the official tagline it's it official but that's, like that's, it. that's that's however how it's seen referred to and i think it's a good way of good way of looking at it some of the guys in this year's afl who you will see soon or maybe have already seen a little bit of already uh kyle tucker who's an astros outfielder Corey ray milwaukee outfielder ronald Acuna, the best prospect in baseball right now uh, braves outfielder justice sheffield who's the yankees pitcher there's a lot of if you love prospects like there's no better place to be than the arizona following and we bring this up because this last Saturday, 
was the 2017 Fall Stars game. It's basically the finale of the league. It's the All-Star game. In the past, you've had guys like Mike Trout, Chris Bryant, Byron Buxton playing. And what's interesting about this for us is that game was played at a park that was wired up for StatCast, which is really cool because, as we talked about in the past, a lot of what StatCast measures are skills. You know, you don't need a lot of pitches to know a guy is fast, has a great spin rate, whatever. If you see a guy has gone three for three in one game, all you really know is he got three hits in that game. You didn't really learn anything about his skills. But if you look at what we can measure with StatCast, you can learn some of this stuff. And I think we've used this to pretty good effect before in talking about the Futures game before the All-Star game the last couple of years. So the game was on Saturday, and when we looked at the data, there were a couple of really interesting names, including one or two I have to admit I'd never heard of before, which is great because I love you know using this to learn about some new guys. So we had, uh, looking at pitch velocity, one pitcher had nine pitches over 98 miles an hour. He topped out at 100.1 miles an hour. That's obviously a skill. Uh, Sandy Alcantara, who I'm sure I didn't pronounce that right because I never can. He's a 22-year-old St. Louis righty. And, uh, you know, I know velocity is all the rage in baseball right now. But when I see anybody hitting triple digits, that's impressive. That's a thing. So, you know, now I think there's opportunity in St. Louis. They seem to be in kind of a transformational phase, uh, especially if Lynn leaves. So he's someone I think we'll see. Um, probably making an impact next year. Yeah, and they just, I mean, they just, the end of an era, they just released uh, Trevor Rosenthal, right. uh, who I guess is going to, he's going to miss next year anyway, but. Uh, Soon Long O is a free agent. There's there's opportunity in yeah. St. Louis. Um, exit velocity is always one of our favorites. There were four balls hit harder than 100, more 104 miles an hour. The hardest being hit at 107.9 by 20 year old Padres infielder Luis Urias, 416 feet home run. Uh, twenty-year-old who reached Triple A already this year. Yeah, Padres I, are interesting. Yeah, I, I turned in the I tuned into the game for a couple innings. That was one of the um, the uh, that was in the window that I tuned in for was Urias's home run. It was impressive. He's not a big guy, um, and he he turned on it, and uh, it was impressive to see the ball jump off his bat. Uh, number forty-eight overall in uh, MLB uh, Pipeline's latest uh, prospect rankings. So yeah, the Padres are are uh, maybe not 2018. They're going to start to look a little more interesting 2018. 2019, I think we'll really start to see them bubble up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, even this year. like I don't know how they're going to challenge the Dodgers anytime soon, but they're so much fun to watch. We talked about Manny Margot, and we talked about Hunter Renfro, uh, Carlos Asuaje. They, they have a lot of fun players. Actually, the second hardest hit ball in this game, also from a Padre, 107.5 from first baseman Josh Naylor, uh, who got a triple, who was actually a first-round pick of Miami, was also traded in that same Luis Castillo, Colin Ray deal. Uh, and he's uh, he's a guy who's you know not that far away, I guess. I mean, he's not like a traditional power hitter, but I don't think you can hit 107.5 by accident either. No, he's uh, he's a he's a big guy. He has a uh, he th- does not have the physique of your normal uh, <laughs> normal 20 year old. He's a little a little huskier, but uh, he's always going back to his. I mean, his high school days. I think he's Canadian actually. Um, always has had. Uh, Great bat-to-ball skills. Uh, two other balls hit 100, over 104 miles an hour in this game, both 105, both from 21-year-old Dodger outfield prospect Yosni Diaz. because if there's anything the Dodgers need, it's more talent. Uh, he's been a really interesting player for them. He's uh, a little bit behind Alex Verdugo, who made his debut this year, but he's probably not that far away. I think we're going to see some changes in the Dodger outfield. We also saw a very interesting pop time play. And, uh, you know, pop time is for catchers. It's how fast do they receive the ball and get it down to the infielder. 1.91 seconds from Tomas Nito to get Ronald Acuna, of all people who we know can fly. Uh, The MLB average this year was two seconds flat. Austin Hedges had the best average at 1.95. And that's that's a really good time. I mean, I don't know if he can hit well enough. He made the major leagues this year, but that's legit. You can't fake that. I mean, also what was impressive about it is if you watch the highlight is it was like a breaking ball outside in the dirt so we had to like scoop it and throw it in one motion so it was it was a the degree of difficulty was high uh nito had a very good year at the plate in 2016 a very poor year at the plate in 2017 Two, 287 on base i think this yeah so um you know the bar for for hitting a catcher is pretty low 
Um, but you need to hit a little bit, or at least have one skill, whether it's be have decent OBP skills or have power. Usually you need to have one or the other, not necessarily both. So if you can sort of like find his way into one of those, certainly the uh, the pop time, the throwing skills appear to be there. I think uh, we looked at sprint speed too from this game, and it's completely unsurprising to see that Victor Robles, who is the number two overall MLB playoff line prospect, hit 30.2 feet per second stealing second base. Uh, and then, you know, the major league average is 27 feet per second. The elite guys get up to 30, but that's their average, right? It's about 30.2 feet per second. That's elite speed also interesting here he only had a 12.3 foot secondary lead the uh, average when you're stealing second base successfully this year was eight feet longer than that so he is already putting himself at a disadvantage and he still got there and he still made it look easy uh, on his very first major league triple this year he set the nationals home to third record record of the last three years obviously uh, 11.12 seconds he is a guy who i think is going to maybe be a starting outfielder for them next year he's interesting I like yeah he's 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 like um Buxton, and that's just fun to watch him run. It's just, it's easy speed. Like he just it, he just glides. The final guy we're going to talk about, and this is one I can honestly say I'd never heard of this name before. Uh, and we looked at spin rate for a curveball here. So Reds prospect, left-handed prospect, Brennan Bernardino, who I'd never heard of before, and I had not heard about him until this instant. Uh, he hit. 3,063 RPM on a curve. Major League average is just under 2,500. Only 2.5% of Major League curves are over 3,000. And as we've talked about ad nauseum with Seth Lugo, that's a skill. And now it does not automatically by itself make you a great pitcher. He's actually not even rated in the top 30 in the Reds list on MLBPipeline.com. But I think that it's interesting to see that he can do this because I, I kind of, I can't say I know a ton about him, obviously. But if you can do that, maybe this is a guy, a lefty, who say, you're the you're Rich Hill now. You know, throw your curveball forty percent of the time. Well, it's it's you know, it's like you know as you as you always say, it's like velocity. It's a skill, um, and it's the kind of thing where you know if you're a scout, you know, I think spin rate will become a thing like like a scout. Whereas previously, if you were a scout and you're watching a game with players you never heard of before, and you saw a guy throw ninety six, you'd be like, oh, this guy's suddenly interesting. Like I don't know if he's actually good, but he's he's now interesting to me in any way he wasn't before. Same thing with spin rate. You see a guy throw a curveball, and obviously we don't. Scouts don't have a spin rate gun uh, yet, yet. <laughs> um, but it's going to be one of those things where suddenly be like, okay, now I'm like, okay, this guy's interesting. Yeah, you, you're right. You look at it as a building block. You say, well, this guy can throw hard or spin the ball like this. Maybe I can teach him how to use it, how to locate, you know, where, how to how to you know get the right spin axis on it. I probably can't teach him to get that spin rate, or I can't teach him to throw 90 miles an hour. So you got to start somewhere. So anyway, it's really fun to look at some of these guys, and I think you're certainly going to see some of these names next year, especially Victor Robles. That's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. We will catch you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team.